Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy, and I am here with my co-host, Keely Severson, and we are Exposing More. Today, we have Michael Pinto with us. He is the founder of Wonder Makers Environmental. He is a certified safety professional who serves as the chief executive officer of Wonder Makers, and he has a master's degree from Western Michigan University and completed post-grad coursework in, in environmental engineering. He also holds the designation of a certified mold professional. Michael's unique ability to present technical information in an easily understood manner has helped bring about his recognition in the, in, in the industry as an educator and is evident in, in, in over of his 150 published articles and several books that he has authored, including the book called Fungal Contamination, A Comprehensive Guide for Remediation. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. It is a pleasure to meet you and to have you on the show today. Well, actually, the honor is mine in terms of uh, getting good information out to a wider audience in regards to, uh, you know, some of the details of mold and how to fix it and how to help people. I'm all about it. Sure, sure. First, tell us about the inspiration behind just finding and operating Wondermakers Environmental. Like, let us know what you do and and the inspiration behind that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Wondermakers has been in business for 35 years and originally started out serving the asbestos abatement industry. And then as um, the industries uh, move forward and as we learn more about other indoor contaminants such as lead, we started providing services in that area, and then um, very early on, about 25 years ago, got uh, deeply involved in the general indoor air quality arena, even worked on uh, some programs with the EPA and FEMA and things like that. And then uh, the subsection of mold as a part of indoor air quality uh, really became more and more obvious to me going back to the mid-90s. Actually, we were doing mold investigations when we were still using, uh, uh, you know, cultured samples and having Petri dishes that have to go around in, in uh, uh, cooler packs and all of that. So we have actually been kind of nosing around, if that's a bad term, uh, the, the mold arena for about 25 years. and. Uh, been excited to see some of the changes in the technology and just the recognition of it as a um, threat, first of all, and then the development of a whole industry around uh, mold remediation. And we've been part of that, writing and and uh, working on the committees that wrote some of the standards, as you talked about, writing the textbooks, educating people through articles, all of that. So that's uh, kind of the overview. Awesome. So you mentioned that you did some work with the the EPA and FEMA. I'm curious to to learn more about that. Well, uh, early on, uh, and again, this is going back to the 90s, if you will. Um, the EPA was just starting to wrap their hands around the whole indoor air quality issue, mm-hmm. and uh, at that point, there was some different task force and committees, uh, uh, Healthy Homes Committee and things like that, that I, again, was honored to serve on. Uh, just, you know, people recognizing some expertise in the area and gaining an invitation and and offering my expertise or comments as we went along. Um, 
the FEMA stuff uh, really developed uh, a little bit more aggressively after Hurricane Katrina uh, back in New Orleans and doing the investigation primarily for mold in a lot of the uh, water damaged houses down in the New Orleans area. And that was the first time that FEMA had actually, um, you know, they had looked for other indoor contaminants like the uh, oil that gets in the water from, uh, you know, the various service stations and down there with the uh, oil producing um, business and everything. But uh, after Katrina, with all of the damage, that was the first time that they really started looking at mold as a part of the FEMA assessment of the uh, water damaged buildings in that area. And again, I was excited to be part of that uh, five, six person team that uh, went around and looked at uh, lots and lots of buildings down there. Very interesting. I'm just, I'm thinking about like the evolution of the industry. And I mean, I'm sure when you started dealing with mold, it was, it was more of a laissez-faire thing, but now it's, you know, there's a lot more stringent details and steps you have to follow in order to remediate a place properly and also protect to protect yourself as a remediator. Could you maybe walk us through kind of the evolution of the industry and how it went from, you know, unknown to, okay, you can tear this out, you know, without being protected and you would be fine to now, you know, everyone has to be in like a moon suit to, <laughs> to get through these biohazards. So, you know, I would actually link some of that to the technology, all right? Uh, and it's been my experience, whether it's asbestos or lead or general indoor air quality or chemicals or now PFAS, uh, you know, if you've been following the news in regards to the water contamination and things like that, a lot of times the hazards are out there, but until we have a method to identify them um, simply, they they go if not unrecognized they go um unappreciated by the general public and so if you look at the mold industry as a uh, remediation industry you can really trace it back to the um late 90s early 2000s and there's two or three things that happened at that same time um, one was the introduction of new technology. So spore trap sampling uh, with the aerosol cassettes became available. So instead of me having to go out, like I was telling you earlier, with Petri dishes and these sampling devices that were, you know, quite scientific and, and needed a lot of details done right to have the samples be accurate. Uh, like I said, even having the Petri dishes of the nutrient source at the wrong temperature uh, could screw things up. Um, you had to select the nutrient uh, material in the various Petri dish uh, that you thought might match with the molds that might be there in the building. Um, they literally had a process at the time where you could either do a, what they call a seven plate or a nine plate stack to take a single air sample that would impact, uh, you know, nine different types of nutrients because different molds are going to grow on different, uh, you know, nutrient types. And then you'd get this information back from the laboratory and you find out that some of the more common 
water damage indoor molds like uh, you know certain aspergillus uh, species and things like that they'll grow on five or six of those plates but at different rates and so now you've got different numbers for the same mold that you're trying to explain to people it was it was complicated to say the least and when the technology came forward that you could take a uh, you know anybody could take a simple sample they don't need to have a lot of of um, quite honestly a lot of technical or scientific background and the labs can look at these um, samples and that was again introduced in 1999 um, and all of a sudden you start getting clarity in terms of what's in the air and what's not in the air without having to have you know twisting yourself into a pretzel to kind of interpret what that information is are you so talking was, about the petri dish plates yeah, the, the Petri dish is the pretzel twisting uh, approach to understanding what's in the air, in my opinion. Um, so all of a sudden, you've got a cheaper, faster, easier method of getting sample data from a building. And basically, right at the same time, you had the events of the water damage in Cleveland and the deaths of some infants in Cleveland that people started to make that association that, hey, this might be the mold exposure in some of these houses, these water-damaged houses that are causing these very serious um, health instances, including potentially the deaths of some of these uh, infants. And then finally, the the third piece, I think, pushed the industry over the edge in uh, 99 and 2000 and 2001 was the big lawsuit down in Texas. the Melinda Ballard case, and and she basically sued her insurance company and said that she had a water damage in her house, and the insurance company sent a uh, you know water damage uh, restoration company out to fix it, and they didn't dry it properly, and as a result of them not drying it properly, that she ended up with mold throughout her house, and that it uh, over time made her and her husband and her child sick, and. That was the big contention in the case is that the insurance company picked the contractor, the contractor was negligent, and therefore the insurance company was on the hook for the um, illnesses and things that her family suffered. So, There's something really interesting about the Melinda Ballard case, and that is when they did sampling at the Melinda Ballard case, Dr. Strauss was able to use a mycotoxin air test. And they were able to prove how much mycotoxin was inside the house with the sampling. And after that case, that test disappeared off the market. So people no longer will, and through that time period, people no longer had access to this type of sampling, mycotoxin ear test sampling, which seemed pretty convenient for the mold doctors and the mold experts that would testify in lawsuits and say, well, even if mold is present with the spores, mold isn't always producing mycotoxins, so you can't prove that it's dangerous or a health hazard. But I yep. think that's going to be and changing your technology if it hasn't already. Well, you, you beat me to the punch with that last comment because what I was going to share with you is that just a year and a half ago, um, and I, I don't typically use um, trade names or anything, but the only folks right now that have a uh, air sample that can detect mycotoxins that's 
readily available to the public is air answers. And they're just starting to reach into the industry and let people know that they have that capability on their air sampler. And that's a, also a very simple Are they sample based in collection. Australia? No, Air Answers, uh, their headquarters is actually in the Chicago area, one of the Chicago suburbs. Because um, there's another, um, there's a chemical engineer in Australia who also recreated the mycotoxin air test from the perspective of finding chemicals because he said all the microbiologists were doing it wrong because they're trying to find something found in microbiology, which isn't a chemical. Well, you may be right. I think um, all, and I'm not familiar with the um, Australian uh, scientist or consultant or doctor, whoever that is, that's uh, doing that. I do know that air answers is using the, um, Polymerase chain reaction, which is the same sampling analytical process that's used for the ERMI and the Hertzme samples. And that's, uh, you know, you're actually looking at the DNA of the different um, structures and things. And so uh, my uh, assessment, uh, both looking at the scientific data and also using it, is that the air answers is very accurate. And How can they find the DNA of a chemical, though? I mean, a chemical well, wouldn't have DNA. Yes, ma'am. And, uh, um, you know, they're looking at both the mold spores and then they're breaking down the uh, chemistry of the, um, the mycotoxin, which you're right, is a chemical that's exuded by the mold itself. But they're also <laughs> using that polymerase chain reaction where you can take a very little bit of a chemical or some of the other uh, materials that are in there and then reproduce it so that you can get a better look at it to determine exactly what it is. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit I am not the scientist uh, uh, or, or lab manager with air answers, and I'm uh, not going to try and speak for the actual analytical approach that they use. I know that they've got several different techniques that they use on their samples. Because that one air sample can be analyzed for mold and it can be analyzed for allergens and uh, uh, a whole number of other particulates and things. So uh, they're, they're potentially subjecting that sample to two or three different analytical techniques. I understand. So it's not just a mycotoxin air test. It's also something else. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's a wide variety of things that they can look for in the air. And one of the benefits of it is that you can send the sample in and have them look for mold, for example. And so if the mold sample doesn't come back as especially helpful, you can even have them reanalyze the sample and look for beta-glucans, which are fragments from the mold that might be helpful in telling you if there's actually mold around. Uh, they can look for the mycotoxins. If it turns out that maybe it's not mold, uh, you can have that same sample analyzed uh, you know, later for allergens, which could very well be the cause of many of the symptoms that uh, people have that they might be associating with mold. So. Yeah, when the technology is out there, when we're able to do these different things with different, um, uh, you know, samplers that are simple for people to use, that's the key. Uh, going back to the original with the Petri dishes and stuff, those are not 
uh, in my opinion, those are not simple samples to collect. And uh, when you get to the point where the technology makes a sample collection easy enough that a homeowner can do it uh, and, and really not, uh, you know, mess it up too bad, um, that's providing information that's going to be very powerful for the industry. That's really exciting because we, I mean, we've had many mold professionals from testers to remediators on the show and, um, you know, they don't have any reports of any advancement in the technology since the nineties. It's just all been kind of the same with, you know, ERMI hasn't changed and all that other stuff. So it's, it's really cool to hear that there is um, something else developing in, and it is in the works out there to, to make things a little bit more simpler. And hopefully, I mean, we like to focus on all aspects of testing and we're not afraid to say, Hey, testing has its limitations. It's not always hundred percent. And it may not show you what you need to know, especially if you're hypersensitive. So all of us, um, and that have started exposing mold, we're all extremely hypersensitive. So literally molecule molecules of stachybotrys exposure could, you know, put us into anaphylaxis. So I guess for us, it's like, that's the, the level of the industry where we wish could be developed or focused on is like, can we, um, I guess, validate, uh, those who are hypersensitive and, um, I mean, trying to find and develop technology and that that's probably going to take a very long time, or maybe people are working on it now. Um, but I mean, these are the type of things that are really exciting to hear when there is developments in an industry that kind of has been stagnant with the testing, you know, there's been like little incremental things, but nothing extremely sensitive where if you take this testing, it's going to be a hundred percent definitive of what's going on in the environment. So I don't want to speak in too broad a generalities, but I will share with you from my experience and, you know, a lot of other people as well will tell you something very similar as these industries develop, they generally go through a, like the mold remediation industry did. They go through a big growth phase at the beginning that sets them uh, off and running. So as I said before, you had that combination of new technology with the spore traps, lawsuits, and um, some health issues that were being recognized by doctors that kind of pushed the whole thing forward from a mold perspective. Then the people got in and, and developed the standards and the techniques that go along with it. But it's quite often, uh, going back to my history with asbestos and lead and indoor air quality and uh, chemical contaminants in a building and stuff, it's, it seems to be quite common that from that first big leap to the next leap that, uh, again, is generated a lot of times by the analytical, it's about 20 years. And so if you look at where we were in 1999, 2000 as a starting point, and then realize air answers, uh, you know, came out with this uh, relatively newer air sampling technology in, in 20 or 21, uh, and certainly started trying to get it rolling here in 22, that fits that time frame that we see being repeated over and over again in different industries uh, over the, at least over my lifetime. and. Uh, so uh, I'm expecting that in a few years, this is just a prediction, but I'm predicting in a few years, maybe another two to three years, you're going to see the technology that Air Answers is using start to displace even a lot of the spore traps. And two things will happen is that um, there'll be more competition in terms of what Air Answers is doing. And there, all of a sudden there's going to be competitors that you can go to. and then 
that will drive the costs down. And as people get more familiar with using the data and as it gets cheaper to use, um, then you're going to see it take off even more. So it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if we were talking in three or four years from now, whether spore traps have, you know, fallen off as quickly as the uh, Petri dish uh, sampling fell off when the spore traps became available. Very interesting. Thank you for that perspective. Well, you know, we're almost there. 2030. We're right around the corner, you know, (laughs) maybe there'll be some really cool, maybe there'll be something that you can attach to your phone and it'll capture whatever is in your air, you know, (laughs) I'm hoping for that. That would be really make it easier for people. Yes. And I wouldn't, um, you know, there's huge advances that are being made in the um, real time monitoring. So up until this point, everything that we're doing right now, is, you know, we're taking the samples for mold or mycotoxins or allergens or whatever, and we're sending them back to the laboratory. And that used to be the same way with chemicals. So we would go in and, uh, you know, we'd have to find whether there's formaldehyde in the air or other volatile organics or something like that. And the only way we would know that is that we would take a sample, we'd send it into a laboratory. You'd have to kind of guess what sort of samples you want to take in the first place. Then you take the samples and you send them into the laboratory, and then later on you get your information back. But the the huge um, advance is going to be what's going on with real-time monitoring, and then when you're matching that with the artificial intelligence so that they can, you know, there's devices now that you can roll into a house, and it, it actually is collecting the particles in the house. and um, uh, magnifying that and then using artificial intelligence to sort out what's a standard dust particle from a mold spore. And they've been doing that for four or five years. And that technology, that AI is getting better and better as they run more and more tests through it, as they get more and more of the inspectors that are using that uh, Instascope is the name of that particular device. And then comparing that with, uh, you know, spore trap samples, and as they see that correlation getting closer and closer, we are going to be at a spot uh, probably sooner than you think, Alicia, where uh, somebody can, you know, take a sample inside and have immediate feedback or somebody, you know, puts a device in their home. And, uh, of course, everything can be run off your smartphone, your uh, watch or what I heard this morning is the little chips that are being inserted in people's, uh, you know, hands now. So, oh boy, get me started on that. <laughs> That's a little scary. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. <laughs> I'm I'm with you on that one. This is the guy who can't figure out how to get on a Zoom meeting without help. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You're forgiven. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> So um, your your organization does a lot of stuff. You guys offer classes, products, and lab services. Um, I really want to know what your current perspective of the mold remediation industry is. Because to us, it's kind of a mess, right? I want to know what you think of it. Yeah, well, my perspective is probably a little different. And that might be because I've been involved in the middle of it for a longer period of time. Um, and also just general experience in other industries where we're doing inspections in homes and 
again, whether it's asbestos or lead or chemicals or tobacco smoke or methamphetamine residue or all the different things that we work on here at Wondermakers, the, the reality of the situation is it's always messy, all right? I mean, when we get to a spot when it's not messy, uh, that's when the industry stagnates. Um, and we keep innovating in the mold remediation industry. I don't know if you heard, but the um, fourth edition of the IICRC S520 standard on mold is um, you know out for public review right now. And there's some major changes in those documents. So I think that things are continuing to advance. I do think that uh, probably the biggest concern is people don't understand that it's a standard of care for the mold remediation industry instead of just a document or a standard. So as much as I appreciate the IICRC document that I just mentioned, the professional or standard for professional mold remediation, that's a voluntary standard. It's not an OSHA standard. It's not something that is regulatory enforced. And so um, you do have to take that and you have to match it with other ideas that are coming from other documents that are also credible in the industry. So the EPA has guidance documents. OSHA has guidance documents. The American Indoor Air Quality Association uh, or the American Industrial Hygiene Association has guidance documents. And and what happens is that all of those uh, documents and all the thinking behind those documents from the experts in the industry really there's going to be core parts and pieces to that that everybody agrees on. And when you're smart enough to kind of sort through that and realize that, in so like in the classes that we teach, we can't just teach, in my opinion, the basics of one of those documents. Because if you do, you're going to miss aspects from some of the other documents that help to round out your understanding of how you're supposed to do mold remediation. So I would just say that, yeah, there's, it can look messy to people from the outside, but the true professionals who really have an understanding of these multiple documents and stuff, and, and really the core principles of mold remediation hasn't changed for 25 or 30 years. We still need to get the physical mold out you still need to control the atmosphere while you're doing that. And uh, I would argue that a lot of our experience shows that the people who become sensitized become sensitized because the mold remediation was not done properly. You know, uh, our, our quick phrase is always bad remediation is worse than no remediation at all because you're just disturbing the stuff. My God, I have so many questions form, formulating Would, here. <laughs> Go ahead, Akili. <laughs> I have questions too. I'm wondering, have have you seen your health change at all since entering the industry? Like, I feel like some of the common things that happen to men are like sunlight sensitivity, increased need for alcohol consumption because of the blood clots that happen with exposure, more prone to anger, or even like just like nerve symptoms where you could be more shaky, really any health changes. I'm just wondering, have you specifically noticed your health change at all since entering the industry? Well, thank you for asking and thank you for being concerned about my health. Um, I think the difference might be that we came at this, you know, as you mentioned, Alicia, early on in the introduction, 
my initial training was in the safety and health field. I'm a certified safety, was a certified safety professional well before I became a certified mold professional. So the emphasis on personal protective equipment and um, not taking chances and overprotecting just because of the things that you were talking about, you know, if you get an exposure and then early on in my career in the mold arena, I, um, you know, have several colleagues who are not in the industry anymore or, or certainly not in the field portion of the industry because they hurt themselves. They did get exposure from some of these buildings that they were looking at without the proper protection and things like that. And right now, knock on wood, uh, you know, I don't recognize, uh, nor does my family recognize any, um, you know, problems from that end with me. And I, I would argue that some of that is just really being fastidious about the um, uh, personal protective equipment. Because you guys are no longer, or I don't know what your org, um, how it evolved, but you are not physically doing remediation. You're just helping and providing suggestions and doing risk assessment type of stuff, correct? Well, the inspections is really where the um, uh, potential exposure can come from. Yeah. Because okay. you're, you're going in and you're assessing these uh, structures and helping people find out what's going on with them. And, and you know, basic protection. And we, we just tell people all the time, I'm sorry, I hope this doesn't scare you as we're doing your inspection, but I'm going to wear a lab coat and I'm going to wear gloves and I'm going to wear some respiratory protection. And it's it's not an indication that I suspect that your house is really horrible or anything, because I don't know. I'm just starting the inspection at that point. But what I am telling you is that I do this for a living, and I get into lots and lots of houses and other buildings, commercial structures, and that sort of stuff. And I can't afford, uh, as uh, Kelly was talking about, um, I can't afford to have an exposure uh, that I'm not ready for. and so. A lot of time is that just, you know, that I end up wasting a, um, you know, protective mask? And the answer is sure. But uh, as as you indicated, I'd rather do that than, uh, you know, suffer some of the neurological issues or some of the other um, health issues that I see my sensitized individual clients suffering from. So Yeah, no, that's good that you do that. But there's a lot of inspectors that don't. They'll just show up, plain clothes, not masked, and they'll go through homes. And I'm just like, ah, thinking about how's your health? You know, <laughs> like your time is limited in this industry if you're doing that, because we're just seeing more and more homes have these mold problems. And as you can see, I mean, you can literally look at the, the, the news of the nation and you could see all this crazy stuff that's happening in the weather and the tornado that just hit Texas. And it's like all of this, all of these different biohazard issues are just on the on the rise. And so it's good that you guys have been so preemptive in the way that you handle testing. You go in, you know, right away, suited and booted, whereas, you know, you would usually just see that with more mold remediation efforts. Yeah, I do want to point out, we don't necessarily do the suits. Uh, I do a lab coat, which can be, uh, you know, and is laundered after each um, uh, inspection. But yeah, certainly the gloves and the respiratory protection is is definitely part of our approach. Um, and I'm just going to share with you, I, I won't use his name because he has uh, passed, um, but 
early on when I was doing mold work, had a colleague that I looked up to was really, um, I think, even leading the way in terms of some of these um, investigations and the technology and some of that sort of stuff. And, you know, expert witness and all of that. And he went to do an inspection and uh, I chatted with him specifically afterwards. And um, because it was an airplane ride, his luggage didn't show up. And in his luggage was some of his personal protective equipment. And so he did this inspection of a moldy house without any PPE. And driving back to the airport, he had to stop. He was so sick, he had to throw up uh, as he was driving back. And he realized he had made himself very sick, um, you know, from the exposure in this house. And he told me face-to-face later on when we were at a conference together, he said, Michael, it wasn't worth it. You know, it was it was a job, and I felt like I needed to get it done and everything, but, you know, unexpected things happen. And when my luggage didn't show up because of, you know, a mistake that the airline made, I either should have gone out and found some of that personal protective equipment at, you know, at a safety store and bought some of that. But his his attitude was, you know, I've done hundreds of these, and you know, this stuff is just over the top or whatever it is. And that one main exposure, he was in the house for about two and a half hours, taking samples, looking around, taking his photos and stuff. And that was enough to make him sick. And he he never got well enough to go back and do field work in the industry again. Ended wow. up doing teaching and consulting, but couldn't go out and do uh, tried a few times after that, but could not go out and do inspections anymore just because of the uh, you know, sensitivity that he had developed from that main exposure. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. We've heard that similar story of, you know, from a few other people in different instances. We had we interviewed Dr. David Strauss, who was actually one of the first people that came on the show. We were so excited. And he told us that when he went into Melinda's house to test it, that he was never the same after that, yep. um, that her house was really bad. And uh, another guy, Jeff Charlton out of the UK. Oh, if you ever have time, you have to listen to this episode. It's like one of my favorite episodes that we ever recorded on our show. I'll send it to you. But Jeff Charlton out of the UK, um, who I, I think, did he write or start the IICRC? He was one of the founding members or something like that. Uh, don't quote me. I'm not sure. But um, he said after his exposures, he got really sick too. And he's, you know, there was an instance where he thought he was having a heart attack and his heart like stopped. I guess it, it didn't register on any of their heart monitors when they took him to, the, to oh the hospital. And he was like, it was the strangest experience um, that he ever had. And so I, I think with his experiences, also his daughter had leukemia and she nearly died in her flat that she had purchased. Um, and so there, you know, it's just like, this is like wear and tear on these inspectors. You have to be really careful with what you're doing and how you're going in and what you said, it's like, it's not worth it. You know, like treat every house as like a biohazard zone, go in protected. Well, I think there's a, you know, again, there's a middle ground there where you need to protect yourself and you need to do it in a way that is respectful to the, you know, people that you're working with and everything. But it's, it's also not, um, I am not going to make a choice to sacrifice my personal health just to make somebody feel more comfortable. And if, if they're living in an environment that I feel is 
you know, by the time I get done with my visible or visual inspection and stuff, if I feel that is actually dangerous for them, even without sample results in hand, you know, there's been more than a few times in my career, which is, you know, legally going to be kind of dangerous, if you will. But I've told people I don't think they should be in the building. I think they should get out. And my thought process on that is that even if somebody later on proves somehow proves that that was an overreaction again i've been trained my entire career as a safety professional i want to prevent the accident from happening rather than looking back afterwards and saying oh well, we should have put a guard on that machine or we should have taken precautions or in this case we should have got those family members out sooner than we did and i'm not willing to be responsible for somebody's ill health or accident if I can prevent it. That's just the way I think. Yeah, I do appreciate your honesty. And I think that's, I mean, that that's the way to be. I feel like as a, as a human being caring for another human being, if you <laughs> sense that they are in danger, despite the, the liability or whatever, you know, bureaucracy, red tape that we have to deal with as, as people in society being human to human, I think it's important to be honest because you don't know what can happen to that family. I mean, we've seen people stay in their moldy homes and commit suicide. I mean, it's this is not something to play yeah. around. This is extremely serious and extremely deadly. And once you get past that hypersensitivity part, it's like your life is never the same. And so this is just quality of life um, for people. And, you know, we don't, there is no cure for hypersensitivity. It's like someone who has a peanut reactivity. Um, it, it, it's a, it's not a fun life to live once you hit that part. So it, it's really great to hear that you are an inspector that's telling people, Hey, this might sound scary, but I'm going to tell you the truth. This might not be a place that you should be living in or staying in. <laughs> yeah. And, and obviously that's going to be a total picture, uh, sort of, uh, determination or discussion, you know, are they telling me on the front end that they've got symptoms are those symptoms lining up with like you're talking about uh, what we know about uh, sensitized individuals and the mold um, do they have underlying health issues that you know that's one that I see all the time that somebody's already sick with something else and then trying to battle the mold exposure you know what I, again uh, I will say right up front I'm not a medical doctor I'm not giving you medical advice I'm just telling you what I understand as an inspector and as somebody who has studied this uh, for years, that sometimes it's important for us to think about being safe on the front end, and then we'll worry about you know some of the difficulties that that's going to cause, because it is never an easy thing to tell somebody they need to find alternate living uh, arrangements or something like that. That's just... You know, that's just going to lead to a host of questions. What can they take with them? What do they have to do with the contents they're taking with them if they're, you know, moving from a contaminated environment? Because you don't want to move somewhere else and then just cross-contaminate the new place that you're going to be moving to. So, I mean, it is it is not something that I would do lightly, but at the same time, I think it's not just human to human. It's also, you know, where's your faith uh, perspective and your spirituality? These we owe it to one another to take care of them. So I do appreciate that. And, you know, it sounds like 
it's always, I mean, well, it's never an easy conversation to say, Hey, you have to leave, but there's, there's like a whole host of other considerations. And you brought that up, you brought up contamination. And that's something that we contend with a lot with the community that we serve and the minutia of that can be crazy making sometimes. Um, So you wrote a book on fungal contamination, and I'd love to just hear maybe some key points in the book that you would like people to know about or anything that would be helpful for people seeking assistance in mold remediation. Well, the the first thing I would say about writing a book about mold remediation is that you have to be a total nerd to do it. (laughs) And I I think I probably qualify in that respect. Uh, the, The main theme throughout that, um, publication though is what I was chatting about before is that there's a lot of different documents and there's a lot of different information out there and the idea is that we can synthesize that but by doing that we can identify very specific principles that a lot of different folks agree on and and quite honestly I, I try and tell people I'm I'm honored that people look up to me as an expert in the industry and that sort of stuff, but I'm just taking information from a lot of sources and I just happen to be the one who can, you know, put it together in a way that uh, the lay person can understand. And uh, once you understand that and realize that it's more than any one document, you have to understand a, a variety of them and find those core principles. Um, that's what I do in the textbook, and I make it easier for people to do that so that they don't have to spend the hours and days that I did going through lots of different documents and finding out, oh, yeah, this person or this group agrees that we need to uh, you know, build real containments or that we have to have negative pressure or that you, know, you want to use HEPA vacuums. All of these different little parts and pieces, which many people today uh you know think is is just uh, part and parcel of mold remediation it comes from a lot of these different documents and when you piece it all together you you can have a little bit broader understanding of of what's important in the industry rather than just saying well we just follow this document or we just do what the epa or we're in new york city so we follow the new york city guidelines well that's helpful and every one of those can be useful, but in my opinion, not as useful as putting it all together and uh, looking at it from a, a broader perspective. And and the other thing I'm going to mention, Alicia, is that for the sensitized individual, if you don't do that, the my uh, understanding and experience is that the the likelihood that they're going to have a good outcome for remediation where a sensitized individual is involved is going to go down substantially if you don't have that bigger picture in mind, if you don't understand the potential connection to the health effects that some of these documents lay out better than some of the others. Um, if you don't understand some of the technology and the um, the actual practices that we're going through, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. That's why it was worth a 360-page textbook. I appreciate that. And thank you for, thank you for just calling out a lot of stuff that (laughs) I probably would have called out if you didn't mention it, you know, as a, a sensitized individual, um, remediation, even if it's done right is not enough for that individual. 
Um, and we, we see that time and time again with a lot of the people that we work with. I mean, they spend so much money and they have, you know, everything is done to the T and they're still struggling. So there are some issues with that, you know, within the remediation industry. I don't know if that's something that can be fixed, you know, like, is there, I feel like when, when remediation goes, I feel like it always should be done for a person who is highly sensitized, even if they're not, you know, because they can always reach that threshold. But like, there's, like you mentioned the IICRC, these are standards of care and they're not regulated. So, you know, there, there really isn't anything holding companies, you know, accountable for, okay, this is how you're supposed to be doing remediation. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking out of my butt. <laughs> Maybe you can give me information because you're the expert. Um, but well, it's just yes. we don't we don't see everyone holding themselves to the IICRC. You know what I mean? And so it's like, how do we get regulation into this? How do we get OSHA and the EPA to to adopt this as regulation? Because the IICRC yeah, is the closest thing to like a really good remediation manual. Well, it certainly is a good document, and again, I'm happy to you know, be involved at least in some of the earlier versions of it and certainly during the public review right now. But I just would caution you, I think people tend to put way too much emphasis on regulations. Um, You know, if, if we have a problem in an industry, well, we need to get the government involved and we need to regulate it because that's going to take care of it. And the answer is no, not necessarily. My experience is that People who don't want to understand what they're doing or want to go on a very facile level or, or quite honestly, you know, people want to cheat people, they're going to do it whether there's regulations in place or not. There's, they're going to do it whether there's a standard of care in place or not. It's just the whole difference between people who are professionals and are proud of what they do and want to do a good job and actually, you know, put effort into understanding what they should be doing and they continue to learn and grow as you go through and people who don't. And the the difficulty with regulations is that they get set in stone and they, they become a floor for you. But then that's that floor quickly becomes the ceiling for the industry. Who's going to go above that regulation? Because, you know, so new technology comes out and we could take an air answer sample, but the regulations say that we have to use a spore trap sample, for example. And who's going to go above that? Who's going to spend more money and get better and perfect their craft when the, like I said, the floor that the regulation is becomes the ceiling? Because anything above that puts people at financial risk of you know, losing that job because everybody's going to say, well, I'm following the regulations. I mean, I've seen this in asbestos. I've seen this in lead. I've seen it in so many different industries. I mean, the asbestos regulations were written 25, 26, 27 years ago, and they haven't been updated because it's such a process on the OSHA side anyway, and the EPA, but on the OSHA side, we've had, you know, People very much at the top of OSHA tell us we're not going to open up those regulations because if we open up for one little area that probably needs to be changed, it opens the door for people to you know be looking for changes in all these other areas, and they don't have the bandwidth or the budget to do that. 
And so we're stuck with 25-year-old standards, which in many cases are just awful. Just, you know, at the time they were good, but right now they're... No, we definitely agree with what you're saying. This is something that we have addressed as well, that regulating the industry could actually backfire in some ways. And um, we know that the people who are pursuing this politically probably have, well, not probably, I know they have amazing intentions because a few of them I know personally, and I know that they, they mean well, um, but it's something like regulating how many spores of stachybotrys could be saved. You know, that could absolutely backfire. We don't really, I mean, maybe the word regulation was used, but it definitely wasn't in used in a literal political sense of having the federal government tell us what to do and micromanage this for us. We just mean the decency kind of of a professional to, you know, follow something that's going to be in the best interest of the clients that they serve. And also like the broader acceptance of doing things to a higher standard and a higher quality and not just by professionals in the industry, but also the awareness within the general public for them to know this is how high the safety standard should be for your health and them not tolerating anything below that and professionals socially not even being able to offer anything less because it's so widely understood that that wouldn't cut it well so that's we- more what you what, what we mean we're not we're not like politically advocating for regulation of the industry it's just you know we deal with professionals who will go do dry ice blasting on their client's attic and they'll say that because it's in the standard of the manual that that client now has no reason to say they're still sick. And if that client says they're still sick, they're crazy, you know, and then these professionals won't recognize, well, did you, (laughs) were there any moisture issues in the attic that needed to be addressed before you did the dry ice blasting? And after you did the dry ice blasting, do you realize the roots of the mold are still in the beams and they're going to grow back if the moisture issues weren't addressed? So, like, these are the things that we encounter in the industry where we just don't see decent-hearted remediation professionals doing their best work. Except, I will say, for Michael Rubino with Change the Air Foundation, he is one remediator who actually, he will say publicly that remediation isn't enough for some people. Even the best remediation isn't enough for some people because sometimes in some cases, some homes can't be restored for some level of hypersensitivity. And so just more of a general acceptance and awareness of how severe the health threats can be for the hypersensitive, because I'm not sure if you you probably wouldn't know, but me and Alicia and our other co-host, Eric, we've all been sensitized. So we're walking mold radars and the people who come to us for help are also walking mold radars. And most of them have been really hurt by the industry. And so that's kind of the change that we'd like to see, probably not in the form of regulation, but social pressure, perhaps. Yes, an industry pressure. And I would say that I I certainly 
am not walking in your shoes directly in terms of uh, being somebody who's been made sick by the mold, but um, a good share of our mold clientele are sensitized individuals as we have kind of grown in stature and just seem to, you know, focus on that area of the industry earlier than some other folks. We've been uh, talking about sensitized individuals even before um, Sears, uh, you know, with uh, Dr. Shoemaker and stuff, we were recognizing, again, not as doctors, but as professionals in the industry, that there's a certain class of individuals who are more susceptible to the mold. Um, Dr. Eckert Johanning, I don't know if you've uh, chatted with him yet or had an opportunity or heard his no, we name. We haven't had him on yet. But, uh, you know, I, I happen to be blessed to meet him early on. I think this is probably back in about 2000. And in 2001 or 2002, uh, actually convinced him to be the keynote speaker at one of the conferences that I was helping to organize. And, and I'll never forget some of the statistics that he was laying out in 2002 in terms of the percentages of people. And, and again, I think you guys have probably heard this from other folks. The vast majority of individuals are, are going to have exposure to mold. And if it reaches a certain level, they're going to have their allergic responses and that sort of stuff, but their body knows how to clear that out. So afterwards they can actually uh, get better. But uh, as I said, Early on in the mold remediation arena, I was aware of some of the things uh, Dr. Johanning was uh, uh, finding out and how dangerous it is and more dangerous for some people than it is for others. So getting back to you know your comment just a minute ago about trying to put social pressure on and all that, some of that also is just uh, what you guys are doing, which is making people more knowledgeable consumers. You know, what questions should they be asking? What things should they be looking for? And it's great to trust your remediation uh, contractor. It's great to trust your consultant. But at the same time, uh, you, you know, we all have to be knowledgeable consumers, and particularly on something that's going to be as important to our lives as the, you know, the mold exposure and the remediation. And if I can just throw one more comment in there, I know that we covered a lot of ground there, but. Um, as much as I appreciate Michael uh, and his approach and everything, our our standard answer to people when they ask us questions, can the house be fixed? Can the contents be cleaned? Um, can it be made safe for me? The answer is yes. You know, we have the technology. We can clean things. We can remediate things. We can do what we need to do to make that house safe or those contents safe or whatever. The question becomes, is it worth the money? You know, and I, what and is I, the process to save belongings? Like when you say worth the money, I'm assuming something that's going to cost extra. So what is the service? Well, it depends on what the content is. There's going to be different cleaning procedures for different types of contents. If they're soft contents, such as clothing and things, um, there's a, uh, you know, cleaning technology such as the Asporta machines that more and more of the contractors are using, which actually... Do you accept under any premise that there's a situation where maybe things can't be cleaned? No, I really do think that we have the technology out there to clean what we need to clean, remediate what we need to remediate, and do it in a way that would make it safe for any individual. If we don't 
take Would you be out. willing to do like a public experiment with us? <laughs> sure. Let's talk about it. But the, the point so of the matter. So the public experiment that I think would be really cool is to take something from a very contaminated place and then you use your cleaning methods. And then we have one of that item that you bring and then one of that item from somewhere else. And we have a hypersensitive and we record it and we say which one is from a moldy building. And they tell us if they can feel it or not based on the reactions. Sure. That would be actually a really cool public experiment. It would be. And what I would say, however, and the point that I'm making is that we can, just like we do in the safety field, Sometimes we have to have, you know, fall protection and nets. Sometimes we have to have more than one level of uh, safety involvement. And so if what I am arguing is that it can be made safe, will a single pass or single process get us there? In many cases, yes. In some cases, no. But if that item or that building is worth saving, and then there's a series of steps we can take. Generally, it's going to be more and more expensive as you go up those stairs, so to speak. But you can get there. If not, then then essentially you're dooming people, right? I mean, what's the most? Well, I don't know. I I don't think so. Not at all. What's the what's the most expensive option? I mean, I just want to know what you have that can undo the molecular bond of a mycotoxin. Like, what is it? Is it a laser molecular blaster? Like, what do you have that's the most expensive option to do this? Yeah, and and some of that is uh, actually being um, looked at right now in terms of different uh, steps forward in the industry. There's but if different- you already have everything to do it perfectly, why do you need to have anything else? So again, the thought process here, and I, I'm trying not to get into semantics here, but the point that I'm making is that for sensitized individuals, many times we have to take multiple steps above and beyond standard remediation. And what's important to know is that if the person is really uh, hypersensitized, what is the likelihood and how many additional steps are we going to have to take above a standard remediation? Right, so what is it? So what is the additional steps for the hypersensitive that you do? That's what I'm trying to get at because this this is the audience that we serve, the hypersensitive. So I'm trying to hear from you what this process is so that if people who are hypersensitive want to use your services, they can know exactly what it is. Okay. so. Typically, it's going to be um, more than just the uh, removal of the source material. Uh, You're going to be talking about a detailed cleaning of the entire structure. Uh, You're going to be dealing with the HVAC system. You're certainly going to be dealing, like you were talking about, with uh, any repair of any water sources so that you don't get things coming back. Um, Beyond that, there may be other treatments. Uh, You know, you can do fogging um, and gassing, for example, of different structures, not as a primary. I would never mm-hmm. recommend that as, oh, we're just going to come in and gas the place and then right, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. But when you're down to the, uh, down to the, you know, third or fourth step 
in terms of trying to get a structure that is going to be acceptable to somebody who's sensitized, like I said, there's these different things. And some of it is going to be, unfortunately, a trial and error. Uh, and so we certainly know that we want to do the physical removal. We want to do a detailed cleaning. We want to make sure the HVAC system is clean. And we may have to go through an entire process with the contents. And the point that I'm making is that you want to explain that up front to the client or to the person who's sick, because to go through that process, as Michael uh, says, it may be better just for them to leave and go somewhere else just because of the cost standpoint. But I'm just speaking of it from a technology standpoint. If we don't have the methods today to go through all of those different steps and make it better for people, then in some respects, I I, I would say we're lost because where are they going to go? Is there any structure that's mold-free? And I, I think that's a misnomer to even think about that when it's all around us from a natural standpoint. Yeah, I think that's where the remediation industry is in trouble. Like, I think that's why I want to do this public experiment with you, because I wholeheartedly am in the other camp only because I have personally tried to wash non-porous and porous things with everything under the sun and it continuously triggered my mold reaction. So if you have a procedure that can prevent people from having to get rid of their family heirloom kitchen table that survived four generations, that would be amazing. But honestly, that hasn't been my experience. And a lot of people who are hypersensitive find that no matter how many times or what something has been cleaned with, it does still produce reactions. And, And we think that the remediation industry is largely not willing to address this. And I also don't think that it dooms people. I think the opposite would doom people. I think to tell people that something could be cleaned when their senses tell them that they're still sick, I think that dooms them to poor health. And I think it empowers people to let them know, hey, look, there's a chance that this molecular bond from the mycotoxins can't be washed off. And if you still feel anxious, autoimmune conditions, insomnia, rashes, ABC, DFG, you might have to realize this is something that can't be cleaned. Like maybe put it in storage for a few years and then recheck it, which is what we recommend to people sometimes if we have to. Um, I just, and I think that this is something the remediation industry as a whole won't recognize because they think that they've. Like they think that they know more than the people who are living with the condition. And I think that if you have something that could honestly make my my contaminated belongings tolerable for me, where I honestly couldn't discern which item was contaminated, we would want everybody to know that because you would be the most popular mold business in the universe because we would be in the background screaming as your cheerleader, holy cow, we've never seen this before because I've never seen a product, a chemical, anything that can make me not react to something that was as contaminated as my belongings were. Okay. So just out of curiosity and not to get too deep into the weeds on this, but out of curiosity, have you ever had anything clean through the Asporta system? No, I have not. 
Okay, so that's a different style of laundry device, and and there's you know, and it can also be used with different chemistries. So how does on, it work? On soft contents, it's going to be a combination of both the mechanical action and the um, chemistry that goes in. So the Asporta system it was originally developed for hockey players' gear. So all of the um, you know, padding and all the stuff that would get all sweaty and all stinky. And if you just throw it in a regular washing machine, it never gets through all of those different layers of all that different material. So this system is designed to force through hydraulic pressure, the water and the chemistry literally through the different um, pieces of, of fabric and even foam and padding and um, We've had great success with some of our clients even having uh, quilts and sleeping bags and things that you would think would never, shoes even, uh, that they couldn't imagine would be salvageable that, that were salvageable to them. And can, we, can, we, can we send you garments to see if you can make them tolerable for us? Can, no, well, I'm sure I want to test this. I have... No, I, I understand you want to test it. You have to understand we're consultants. We're not restoration contractors. So, oh, so this isn't your this isn't your device, is what you're saying? No, no. These are devices that are available that many of the restoration contractors do have. And so, what's the technology behind this system that you're saying? Is it similar to like an ozone technology or a hydroxyl? No, it's it's hydraulic pressure. They're actually taking the water and the chemistry and inside the machine, however the machine works, they're forcing it through the very pores of the material. And I would leave it to the folks at Asporta to describe their technology to you in a little bit you thank know, more you detail. For the, thank you for the name because it gives us another avenue to, to look. I mean, if there and is can, something that could potentially help, I am all about finding it. Like. And if I it's can, a laser uh, beam from NASA. I want it. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I can to live with. <laughs> yeah. When we're done with this, I can, um, you know, follow up and give you some contact names of the folks at Asporta, that the technical awesome. people Thank over you. there that you should reach out to. And then, um, and again, I wouldn't mind being involved. I was uh, doing some testing for them um, where we had, mold and then even smoke damaged and asbestos contaminated materials and we would literally cut sections of the you know quilt or the the quilted vest or something before so that then we could test it and see what was on it and then run it through the machine and then cut sections of it afterwards to see you know how many asbestos fibers or how many mold spores uh, that sort of stuff was left um so there very much interested, I think, in in continuing to learn and promote their technology to the industry. Um, but the third party that we need there, we would need a remediation contractor that has, uh, you know, the equipment that they're using so that we could have them actually do the cleaning process so that you could see um, before and oh, after. Right. And, and I think we could easily find somebody to help us with that. I'd be more than willing to travel and meet you guys and run an experiment because, I mean, we have over 40,000 people that are trying to figure out how to 
clean their belongings because they're just too hypersensitive to to their stuff. Um, and so like this, we don't want to keep this a secret. We would love to like bring this out and let people know that if it does prove to be helpful for someone who has the level of sensitivity that we do, I mean, this can, this is a game changer. I think the real question is, you know, could it, could you put peanuts on a blanket, clean it with this device and then give it to someone with a peanut allergy? But I'll save that question for the company. I won't, I won't you expect go. you to answer it. Just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, not all bad here. And, just well, the other thing is I wanted to share with you is that that's, you know, my job in some respects is to identify a lot of these different uh, procedures and processes and then share them with the industry and help to build them into our, uh, you know, protocol for any one particular client based on what their needs are. And so as if there I was said, someone who had an eye on the device industry to find the perfect thing, you'd be the person. I, I like to think so. I spend a lot of time looking at uh, different technologies in the industry. And I think because I've been doing it a while, people also hear of me. And so, you know, the nice thing is I sometimes get people calling me and say, hey, what do you know about, you know, this technology? And if I haven't heard of it already, now I've heard of it and I can you know, start my research to go out and, and see how it's working or if it would work or can we bring it from a different industry into the one that we're facing right now or the one that we're dealing with now. Um, but remember, also, there's all these different parts and pieces that are out there. And sometimes it's like um, baking a cake. Uh, you know, a chocolate cake is a chocolate cake until you figure out what grandma does to make it taste like her chocolate cake. And the, the analogy there is that sometimes we have to take some of these same ingredients, if you will, in terms of what is going into remediation and we have to adjust them for the um, individual client. And the, the more sensitized they are, typically the more adjustments and the more additions you have to make in terms of the ingredients, if you will, in that. Uh, protocol to to help them get better, and I think this matches up very well with what your your uh, mold doctors or the doctors that specialize in mold illnesses will tell you too. You know, we have to take it a step at a time. We're going to try these things. Um, if you get a good response from this, we can keep going. If you don't get a good response, we can try something else. That's what it's all about. Is in some respects, like you're talking about trial and error. Uh, do some of these experiments, do it in a limited way so that, you know, I'm, I'm never a fan of uh, making a, a person a guinea pig, although when you get right down to it with the most sensitized individuals, that sometimes is what we have to have because their sensitivity is greater than any instrument that I can utilize. I mean, exactly. I, I can say zero spores or I can say, you know, right now we've got zero mycotoxins in the air, but that's to the limit of detection for whatever technology that we're using. And uh, the sensitized individual has this amazing ability to be uh, sensitive at or reactive at levels that we don't, you know, normally encounter. And so ultimately they are going to be the 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 final say in terms of whether this is acceptable or not and absolutely and that's why i was saying earlier on 
just because something is technically feasible doesn't necessarily mean that it's feasible for that project or that person. And as much as I would like to save somebody's, you know, wedding photos, for example, a lot of intrinsic value there. Uh, maybe the photographer is out of business and we don't have the negatives or something like that. Sometimes the best we can do for them in a situation like that from a, you know, balancing everything, including a cost perspective is we're just going to have to shoot pictures of the pictures, you know, and get them something new because by the time we went through the entire process of, of literally putting these pictures underneath a microscope to see what's there, every square inch of it and try and get them clean or something that may not be feasible from a financial standpoint, but mm-hmm. I've also seen, you know, classic artwork, $750,000 piece of artwork that people, you know, sent to the conservatories and stuff, and they're turning them over. And we've got individuals with giant magnifiers and tweezers, micro tweezers, pulling spores and hyphal fragments out from in between the, um, you know, the, the weave of the, the canvas that the painting is on because it's worth it. It's like I said, it's a, a three quarters of a million dollar painting. So weird things happen. The question becomes, what is the value and what is the cost and how do you match those things up? I think that's really good advice is, you know, thinking those things through. If it doesn't get clear, the cost to your health versus the cost of replacement and, and which would be greater. That's and sometimes we'll tell them, you know what, we have, you know, for contents, let's say we have six different steps we could try and, and going all the way up to, you know, but we're going to start with the Asporta and some other things, but we could go all the way up and we could gas them and we can ozone them and we can do all sorts of things, right? That might be helpful. The, the question becomes, how much do you want to go up that ladder? And if you don't, tell people about the steps on the ladder before you start it it's almost like you're luring them in and said well that didn't work but we here's something else we can try okay but that didn't work so here's something else we can try and the the key in my mind is having an understanding of as many of those steps as possible and then saying you know what for a lot of our clients it really works to do these one or two things and then if if it's going to take more than that if we get to that point and it's still not acceptable to you, then you've got a harder decision to make. Do you really want to try and save these things? Um, and and I'll just be blunt with you. The first thing we tell our clients about contents is that now is a good time. If you're sensitized and, and you're sensitive to the contents that were in your damaged building or something, now is a good time to declutter your life. You know, we, we probably all have more stuff than we need to have. And, uh, you know, and it may not be just throwing it away. I mean, there, there may be individuals who are not sensitized, who if we put it through a standard laundry process could benefit from this, you know, if, and I know people get scared while I'm sick and it made me sick. So I don't want to make anybody else sick with it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that coat or those boots or, you know, whatever that item is, would be dangerous to somebody else. 
And if there's somebody who doesn't have one of those that you could give to, uh, you know, Salvation Army or whatever your favorite charity is, the gospel mission in your town, you know, realize that that could be a blessing to somebody else, even if it's a danger to you. So. Thank you so much for that information. And thank you so much for your time today, Michael. It was a pleasure to meet you. I'd love to reconnect with you to hear the steps of the ladder, um, either for another episode or privately. Um, It was a pleasure to learn from you today, especially about some of the other technologies that we haven't heard of and to get the names of the companies that we can continue our search for something that could possibly help people. would be awesome. If our audience has the need to connect with you for your services, what are your what is your contact information? So they can certainly reach us at um, info at wondermakers.com, I-N-F-O at wondermakers.com. And our telephone number here at the office is 269-382-4154. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really love the name of the organization. Like, just real quick, a background. How did you come up with that name? I love it. You know, it was really interesting. We, um, like I said, we started in the asbestos industry, and there was so many companies that were fiber this or asbestos that, and we just had a sense uh, that you know we might end up expanding beyond asbestos, which of course has happened. And we didn't want it to be, um, you know, locked in uh, on that one industry. And so uh, at some point, uh, someone said to me, well, this new asbestos sampling device that you've invented, just it's a, it's a wonder to the industry or it's a wonderful addition to the industry. And we were making wonderful stuff. And so wonder makers, there you go. <laughs> there isn't a lot more behind it. You know, sometimes <laughs> we're started the company out of the basement of our house and so oh yeah crap we got to have a name for this right so yeah it starts somewhere you know everyone has their their journey of of building their organizations where they are now and it's really cool that you're kind of like this gatekeeper keeping an eye on the industry and trying to see what works and what doesn't and definitely would like to stay connected with you definitely would love to do some sort of experimentation. We're all about experimentation. And so maybe we can kind of figure out by donating ourselves, our, our mold radars and coming over there and, and trying out all these systems and seeing what we can come up with. Because if you, if you or someone else has the technology to resolve contamination, my God, it would be completely life-changing, completely life-changing. And it would be such a huge moneymaker in my opinion, yep. um, because there's so many people like just battling this issue and just well let's let's make sure that we're yes i understand but let's make sure that we're um you know identifying so there's going to be different techniques and different uh, pieces of equipment for each aspect of the mold remediation work so what we're talking about right now is Mm -hmm. contents and then we're narrowing it down we're essentially talking about soft contents right generally porous clothes and things like that um there's different techniques for hard contents. There's different techniques for the building itself, different parts of the building, attics, uh, you know, crawl spaces, etc. So each aspect of the industry has these technologies that are out there. And that's really what I was trying to get to when I was talking about making the cake. You know, you have to, you have to pick your ingredients 
for what you're trying to accomplish. And that's going to be a little bit different. I've never been able to use a cookie cutter, um, you know, uh, remediation uh, protocol. It's always so been is different. Part of, is part of what you do try to help people f- figure out what the best solutions are for them personally? That's it. We do the assessment and help them understand what they're facing. And then uh, depending on, you know, their initial assessment. You do assessment. the assessment in what way? Like testing or assessing right. do the, the actual building inspection or reviewing the inspection information that other um, you know, individuals have done because we have literally like you guys, I'm sure you have, um, listeners and stuff, but we have clients from all around the world. And, uh, sometimes it's not possible for us to just jump on a plane and go and do an inspection, but there's other good people in the industry, other good professionals. And so then we take on a consulting role, just like, a, uh, you know, sometimes you'll have a consulting doctor at, um, a, a hospital you know, thousands of miles away that are, are helping your doctor sort this out just because they have a bit more experience in that area. Got it. Well, we'd love to start with clothing. We can okay. start there and then we'll move forward because we have, I mean, people have to wear clothing every day and we can't walk around in society naked. And I think that's one thing that the mold hypersensitive community has issues with. It's like keeping clothing clear and, um, you know, a lot of synthetics are kind of like magnets for contamination. And so it, it gets a little bit more tough. So anyways, I can talk your head off. We can be on this conversation forever. You're just a very interesting person. And I'm, I'm really happy that I found you and that you agreed to come on the show and provided such great information. We appreciate you and we'll keep in touch. Well, thank you very much. And just as the final follow-up for what we've been talking about here, um, you would like me to reach out to the Asporta folks and actually see if we can get them involved in a three-way conversation about doing an experiment. Is that, is that where we're going with this? Okay. Absolutely. 100%. And uh, my husband and I are traveling nomads. We live in an RV and I'm willing to, <laughs> after the snow melts, willing to be um, <laughs> in a location to to progress this because we have a lot of people that need a lot of help. And that's really what our motivation is, is to just help people through this and hopefully come out of the other end in better health. So very good. I appreciate hearing that because um, one of the reasons I was a little bit slow coming on today, we had to move a bunch of cars and have our parking lot plowed. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I I'm good. I don't want to bring my big old trailer through that and flip and slide in and trying to figure out and drive in the snow. We're in the desert right now and enjoying I mean, it's still cold. It's not like it's warm or anything, but at least we don't have snow. And so yeah. that's, you know, what that's, I'm enjoying. <laughs> that's good. That's good. All right. Well, I will right, uh, give me a day or so. I'll reach out to the sure. folks at Asporta. And as soon as I hear from them, I'll try and put us together in a um, uh, three-way email. Absolutely. We'll Absolutely. We're also working with an organization as well that um, Keely had mentioned earlier that they've developed a mycotoxin air testing um, device that is much more sensitive than what currently is offered on the market. And so we're, we're actually testing that out now to see if it can help people with our type of sensitivity and what it shows and everything. So, um, we're, we're figuring that out and seeing if that's, um, something viable. So that's something that we'd be willing to share as well for you guys, since you're kind of like a person looking at the industry. So good. Yeah. Well, All right. Thank you so much, Michael. You have a wonderful day and we will talk soon. Thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> Bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit ExposingMold.org for more information. Mm -hmm.